Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. We are so glad you're here. I want to welcome everybody who's joining us online. It's always a privilege and a pleasure to have folks joining us online from different parts of the world. Grab a Bible this morning and go with me to the final, for the final time, at least in the context of this study, to Matthew chapter 5. Find Matthew chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be as we study the scriptures together today. And while you're turning there, let me just ask you to do something, to remember to do something for me at, uh, throughout the course of this next week. On Friday, we had a group of people, a great group of people, leave from our church for the first of what will be two short-term mission trips to Poland. Uh, so I don't remember the uh, number of people that left, but uh, we've had a mission partner there called Pro-Am Ministries for over 25 years. It's one of our oldest partners. And what these folks are going to be doing is, is Pro-Am has invited 120 kids, and they range in age from 7 to 12 from eastern Ukraine to come to their campground. They have a beautiful campground there in Poland and spend the week just as campers. These kids are what's known as war zone kids because where they live, there's a lot of unrest. They're surrounded by a lot of fighting, uh, a lot of really difficult circumstances. And so it's a great, great experience. It gives them a chance to, to leave home and for a week just be kids, just, just have fun at camp, play games, uh, be ministered to and loved. And the group of folks that left here from Mount Pleasant are really involved in partnering with Pro-Am to do that, to provide that kind of an opportunity for these kids. So keep them in your prayers all throughout this week. I mentioned a minute ago that we're going to open our Bibles for the final time in the context of this sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. We're working our way verse by verse through Matthew. We're opening our Bibles for the final time to Matthew chapter 5. It feels to me like we've been in Matthew chapter 5 forever. It really does. And honestly, this is the 15th message from just the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, that's due primarily to the fact that we went verse by verse through the Beatitudes, and that was a pretty lengthy part of the chapter. But that's pretty incredible to spend that much time in a single chapter. And I know that I normally give you a few minutes to sit down after the worship, but uh, we got a lot to talk about, so just stand right up there with me. We're going to read this passage together like we always do. We always stand in reverence and respect for God's Word. And uh, we're going to read it together, and we're going to talk about it today. I'm going to begin in verse 38 and go to the end of the chapter, which is verse 48. Remember, this is Jesus speaking, and he said, <clears throat> You have heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet, or excuse me, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. I want to begin with a little bit of a confession uh, this morning. Uh, this was a short work week, as you know, this past week because Monday was Memorial Day. And I had several things that I had to do on my calendar for Tuesday. Uh, my Thursday had already been obligated for weeks uh, with an activity outside of the office. And so that just left Wednesday for me to try to write the sermon. And so I came to work on Wednesday. I sat down at my desk behind my computer, and I grinded out that 
sermon. But that's not a good thing because that's not the way that I like to write sermons. I'm, I'm not a grinder when it comes to writing sermons. But I finished the message, and I went home, and honestly, I didn't think about that message again until Thursday night when I got home from my activity, and uh, I had some dinner. I sat down, opened up my computer, and read through the manuscript so that I could prepare the PowerPoint that goes on the screen behind me when we come together for worship. And here's the thing. I read through the manuscript, and it was awful. It really was. It was just awful. And I'm not embellishing that. I'm not exaggerating that to try to get some kind of response. It was really, really bad. I've told you before that from time to time, somebody will call me up and say, hey, will you come and preach at my church? Or will you come and preach for me at this activity or this uh, event? And they'll say something like, you don't have to worry about writing a new sermon. I'm not going to assign you a topic. You just find your best sermon that you've ever preached, and you bring it and you preach it for this event. And I'm always left feeling like I have no idea what that is. I honestly, I have no idea what that is. And I've told you before, and it may not always be true, but this is my attitude and my approach when it comes to preaching. I always say that my best sermon is the next one because I want to have that kind of attitude. I, I, want, I want the next one to be better than any sermon that I have ever written or ever preached before. Uh, so I went to bed on Thursday night and I just laid there in my bed, wide awake, thinking about how bad that message was. And I laid there and laid there until I got out of bed. It was 1.12 in the morning, and I thought, I've got to do something about this. I can't take this message to the pulpit. And beginning that night, or I guess I should say beginning that morning, I rewrote the entire message. I really obsess over the weekend sermon. I, I literally write out every single word in my manuscript, and I almost never vary from the way my manuscript reads. It may not look like that sometimes if I'm not looking at my notes, but, I mean, think about it. If I preach a sermon four times in a weekend, I should know it pretty well by some point. But I obsess over it. It's really important to me because more than anything else, I want the people who come to church to be able to understand First of all, understand the explanation of what the Bible says in passages like the one we just read, and then I want you to be able to walk away knowing how you can apply it to your life. That's a really big deal to me. And so having said that, I look at this text that's in front of us today, and it's clear to me that Jesus has one central overriding point that he's making in this text. And here it is. You should write this down in your notes. The point Jesus is making, the central point he's making is this. We need to be willing to release our rights when it comes to certain people. You should write that down in your notes. We need to be willing to release our rights when it comes to certain people. And you see that right from the very beginning of the text. Look back at verses 38 and 39. This is how it all begins. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. All right. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward. In fact, I'm sure there's nobody here this morning, nobody listening to me online, who hasn't at some point in their life heard the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or something like that. In fact, you can look on the screen, you can see where that comes from. It comes from Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 and 24. And if you go back and you look at that passage of Scripture, you'll see somewhere in your Bible probably a chapter heading or a paragraph heading that says personal injuries. And so this was a part of God's law for his people when it came to personal injuries. If somebody did something to you, you had the permission to do something back to them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so on. There's more, it's more descriptive than just those two phrases if you go back and look at it. 
but it's really pretty clear. It seems pretty straightforward. But this is a passage that I think can be easily confused. Because, listen to me close. Jesus is not telling us to allow someone else to abuse us physically. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that if somebody comes after you, that you're just to be a passive doormat and let them just do whatever they want with you to have their way with you. What he's talking about is he's talking about releasing your right to respond in a very specific way. And the great application here, I think the very specific way that he's talking about is releasing your right to respond when someone insults you. And the reason why I believe that's the case is because Jesus is very specific to say, think about this, listen, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, did you know that most of the people in the world are right-handed? In fact, it's crazy. About 90% of all people are right-handed. In fact, if you're right-handed, raise your hand. Let me just see. Okay, look, 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 look. All right. Now, all you stuck-up, left-handed people (laughs) who think that this makes you special, you need to understand this was probably just some kind of a manufacturing problem (laughs) from the beginning. But 90% of the people in the world today are right-handed. And Jesus says if someone strikes you or slaps you on the right cheek, think about that. The only way that most people could strike you on the right cheek is by striking you with the back of their hand, right? You're standing directly in front of them. If they're going to strike you on the right cheek, they're going to strike you with the back hand. Well, rabbinic law, and remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. According to rabbinic law, hitting a man with the back of your hand was the ultimate insult far worse than any kind of a verbal insult you could give to them. It wouldn't necessarily be something that would be hard enough to really maybe inflict a tremendous amount of damage, but it was the most grievous insult that you could do or give to another person. And so what Jesus is saying here is when that happens, when somebody comes along and strikes you on the right cheek, you need to release your right to retaliate. Even though, technically speaking, the Old Testament law says retaliation is okay. And I really think, friends, honestly I do, that the application is related more to how we respond to insults than physical attacks. And I think that's very practical for all of us because I doubt there are many people in this service who have ever had the experience of somebody striking you in the face. I mean, apart from a few fistfights when I was a little boy and most of those with my older brother... Nobody has ever hit me in the face, but I've been the recipient of a lot of insults. How about you? This is something that's far more practical for all of us, something that we can relate to far more than some kind of a physical attack. Interestingly enough, most of the insults that I receive as an adult are related to the sermon that I preach. I sat down and made a list of some of them. Some of them are funny. Most of them are not. And a lot of times, I don't think the person talking to me even knew that they were insulting me. That was an interesting sermon today, Pastor. Do you know Pastor so-and-so? Now that guy can preach. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) That's why I couldn't bring myself to come up here with that original sermon. I can't give more ammunition to people than what they already have. But I want to make my 
point really clear here. I want to make the understanding really clear. Jesus, what he's teaching us in this passage is that we need to be willing to release, release our rights when it comes to certain people. In fact, you should just write that down in the margin of your Bible and there next to our text. You should just write, release your rights when it comes to certain people. And let me just show you that. Let's just literally work our way through the passage, okay? Go back to verses 38 and 39. Uh, he, he, he tells us this with four illustrations, okay? First of all, in verses 38 and 39, he says, release the right to retaliate. Uh, we, we read that. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I don't need to go any further because I already explained that whole thing to you. But then we go to verse 40. And verse 40 says, and if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. Now write this down. Here's what Jesus is telling us with this illustration. We need to release the right to only do what's required when we're paying a debt. We need to release the right to only do what's required when we're paying a debt. Now that might not make any sense at first, but that's only because it needs a little explanation. In ancient days, in the days of Jesus, uh, men wore tunics, which were like shirts, and then they wore cloaks, which were like coats. And most men in Jesus' day would have more than one tunic. In fact, they could have several. But at the same time, most men in Jesus' day would only have one cloak, a single cloak. It was a very valuable item of clothing. Now, if someone sued you, if you did something to hurt someone or offend someone or you wronged someone and they took you to court and they sued you and the court found against you, but you had no money to pay whatever debt the court assessed to you, then it was common for the court to require you to give up a tunic to pay the debt or give up a tunic until you could find the money to pay the debt, but not a cloak because the cloak was so important. Not only was it a coat for men, but it was also used in Jesus' day as a blanket to keep men warm when they slept. In fact, it was such a big deal that in the Old Testament law, in Exodus chapter 22, verses 26 and 27, I don't think I put this on the PowerPoint. Exodus chapter 22, verses 26 and 27, this is what you read. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body, what else will he sleep in? So a cloak was so valuable that usually it wasn't required that you give up your cloak to repay a debt. But if you had to, it could only be kept until the sun went down and then returned to you because you needed it to be able to sleep and keep warm. So what Jesus is basically saying here in verse 40 is that you need to release the right to do only what is required if you've wronged someone. You need to be willing, if you've wronged somebody and, it's been, and the judgment's been found against you and it's clear that you, are, you offended them, you hurt them, you wounded them in some way, then you need to be willing to do whatever you need to do, give up whatever you need to give up, make whatever sacrifice you need to make to make that right, not just the minimum. Because it'd be like me saying to you, listen, I am so sorry that I did this to you that not only am I gonna fulfill my responsibility according to the judge, but I'm going to do even more because I want our relationship to be okay. Then you go down to verse 41. And the third illustration is this. Jesus says, and if someone wants, excuse me, he says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this is what you should write down. Jesus is saying you need to release the right to limit our obligations. We need to release the right to limit our obligations. And again, that requires a little explanation. In Jesus' day, the Jewish people lived under Roman rule and Roman occupation. 
they were, they were under the thumb of the Romans, and they hated that. They despised that with every part of their being. They hated that reality. And Roman law gave Roman soldiers the right at any time and any place to stop a Jewish citizen and say, stop everything you're doing right now, pick up my pack and carry it for me for a mile. So this is a literal statement here, a literal statement. Now, can you imagine how, how much they hated that? They hated being under, being under Roman rule and Roman occupation. Can you imagine how inconvenient it would be if you were a, 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 a man trying to take care of your home and take care of your family in that day and age, and you were in the middle of trying to accomplish all that you needed to get accomplished that day, and all of a sudden a Roman soldier approaches you and says, listen, you need to stop what you're doing right now, put everything down, pick up my pack, and you need to carry it for me for a mile. Can you imagine? They hated that. In fact, commentators say that many Jewish men would mark out exact distances, the exact distance of a mile from the different places they would spend their time during the day, whether it be in their home or maybe their job if it was someplace else, just so they made sure they didn't go one step further than an exact mile, and they met the minimum of the obligation. But Jesus is saying, you need to release your right to limit your obligations. And if somebody says to you, go with me a mile, then go with them too. Now, why? Why would Jesus say that? Well, all of this instruction is about how we can make an impact on, the other, pe on other people, especially difficult people, especially our enemies. I, I can't imagine that you could find any greater love or greater act of kindness than to be loving or to be kind to someone who was not loving to you and was not kind to you, who didn't care anything about you. That's a great impact to show that kind of kindness to somebody who didn't care a thing about you. Then you go to verse 42. And the fourth illustration Jesus gives us is this. He says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And when I look at that, I see that we need to release the right to only be generous to certain people. Release the right to only be generous to certain people. And here's why I say that. You know what? It's easy to be generous to somebody that you like. It's hard to be generous to somebody that you don't like. It's easy to be generous to someone who is like you. It's oftentimes hard to be generous to somebody who is very different from you. And so Jesus is telling us we need to release the right to only be generous to certain people. And I feel certain, friends, there's, you can read different commentaries that say different things, but I feel certain this is the correct interpretation of this because why else would Jesus include this specific instruction in a list of instructions that all deal with how we treat or how we respond to difficult people, how we, how we respond to our enemies, basically? And then to top it all off, to top it all off with those four great illustrations, Jesus reinforces this teaching in verses 43 through 48 when he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Or in other words, that you might be like God. Like God. Loving your enemies makes you like God. And he says, uh, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Even pagans do that. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And hey, how intimidating is that verse? But the word that he uses for perfect there in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language is the Greek word teleos, and it has more of the meaning of being mature or complete, complete than it does being perfect in the 
way that we normally think of perfection. So Jesus is teaching us to release our rights when it comes to others, in particular, people who are difficult, people who are mean, and people who are our enemies. And so here's the question. Now that we understand that, how in the world do you do that? How in the world do we live this out? Because most Christians, and I'll put myself at the top of the list, most Christians I know don't live like this. We don't live like this. It's not our nature to live like this. So how do we do it? How do we live out these countercultural teachings of Jesus, these teachings that go against every fiber of our being? How do we do it? Well, I think it is a very personal answer, and it all goes back to our own individual personal relationship with God. You know, years ago when the Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal talked about this truth or this idea that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, he wrote about how we respond to the reality of that vacuum. He said this, this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. In other words, he's just reminding us that we have this, this void, this emptiness, this vacuum, this infinite abyss in our hearts that can only be satisfied through a personal relationship with God. It's very much the same as what St. Augustine said when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. We were created, all of us, to live in a personal relationship with God. That's the first reality of all of our lives. And so the single best thing that any of us can do as we live our lives in this world and the only way that we're ever going to be able to live out these countercultural teachings of Jesus is to devote ourselves, and I use that word specifically, to devote ourselves to pursuing God by embracing His Son Jesus every day of our life with every fiber of our being. And that devotion should be the single greatest passion of our lives. If you're a Christian, the devotion of seeking God through His Son Jesus should be the greatest passion of your life. You know, I, 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 preaching is a really big deal to me. I love preaching. I love good preaching. I love listening to good preachers. And good preachers to me are preachers who preach straight from the Bible. They explain the Scriptures. They illustrate the Scriptures. And then they tell you how to apply the, the Scriptures to your life. One of the greatest preachers who ever lived was a man named St. John Chrysostom. He lived in the late 4th century and was known primarily as a great preacher. His name, loosely translated, means the one with the golden voice. But he was more than just a great preacher. He was a great pastor. He was a great leader in the early church. In the early days of his Christian life, he followed what had become a pretty popular practice in Christian circles in the early centuries. Back then, they, Christians believed if you wanted to be really deeply spiritual, then what you needed to do was to move out into the desert, find some kind of cave, and live your life as a hermit involved in nothing but ceaseless prayer and ceaseless study of the Bible. And you needed to deny yourself every luxury, but not just luxuries. You needed to deny yourself in even the most basic areas of the comforts of life, like eating a normal meal or sitting down to relax or even laying down to sleep. It's said of St. John Chrysostom that he spent two years in the desert, basically on his feet the entire time, even sleeping while standing up, if you can even imagine that. 
The combination of those harsh conditions and the radical diet that he ate created permanent physical damage and he suffered with health problems for the rest of his life. And after two years in the desert, he finally came to the conclusion that this lifestyle was getting him nowhere. So he returned home and began the process of ordination for ministry in the local church. And it's what he accomplished after that that really stand out in his life. Within a few years, he began to preach in the local church, but his sermons were different than what other preachers delivered. Other preachers were delivering these theological dissertations that were filled with allegory and filled with symbolism that were hard to follow and hard to understand, but John just delivered plain, practical messages that applied the truths of the scriptures to life. Instead of challenging people to do things like run off and live a hermit's life in the desert, he challenged them to stay right where they are and just love one another. Instead of Focusing on building great cathedrals, he built a network of hospitals to care for the sick and the poor. And what we see in his story is the transformation of a man who was concerned first with following religious rules and following religious rituals to a man whose life became all about pursuing the heart of God. That was the passion of his life and putting the priorities of God into practice in his life every day. And friends, that's the life we need to pursue, you and me. If we're going to live the genuinely righteous lives that Jesus calls us to in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, Matthew chapter 5 is all about Jesus contrasting the, re- the difference between being religious and being righteous. Being religious is primarily the following of rules with no involvement of the heart, while being righteous is focusing about all on the heart, about the, the motivations of the heart, about having a right heart. So we need to pursue a life of devotion to God. And we get that in a relationship with his son Jesus who reveals God to us. And listen, if you do that, if we do that, then this is what will happen. The first thing that, happen is that, that will happen is that you'll love as Jesus loves. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, verses 34 and 35? It was the night he was betrayed and arrested. He said to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You don't have to study the Bible very far to see that the Christian life, before it's about anything else, it's all about loving others. The second thing that'll do is if we pursue the heart of God, if we are devoted to pursuing God and our relationship with God, then you'll also pursue a life of holiness. And this is the will of God for all of us to live holy lives. You remember the story about how David became the second king of Israel, how Saul, the first king, had fallen out of favor with God. And so God sent the prophet Samuel to the home of a man named Jesse because he said one of his sons is going to be the next king. And when Samuel showed up, Jesse immediately brought out his oldest son, Eliab, because it made sense to him that he would be the king. He was tall, he was, he was strong, he, he had the look of a king, but God spoke to the prophet Samuel in that setting, and this is what God said to him. He said, do not consider his appearance for, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel passed over all of Jesse's sons until he had to say, are there any left? And they said, well, there's just David who's out taking care of the sheep. And they brought him in and God anointed David to be the next king of Israel. He became the greatest king of Israel. 
Sometime later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was in a place called Pisidian Antioch, and he went into this synagogue one day, and he was invited to stand up and speak. And when Paul stood up to speak, he began to recount Old Testament history to the people that were there. And as a part of his recounting Old Testament history, he told this story about how David became king. This is what it says in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, where that is recorded. Paul says, after removing Saul... He made David their king, talking about God. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do, listen to me, he will do everything I want him to do. I like the way that's rendered even better in the New King James Bible. In the New King James Bible, it reads like this. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Who will do all my will you know what that means? That means Paul, as he was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that someone who seeks the heart of God, someone who pursues God with devotion, will do the will of God, will do all that God asks them to do. And I want you to listen to me really close, friends, because this is true for every one of us. God's will for you, for me, for all of us is to live holy lives, period. That's the will of God for all of us. And the only way we can live holy lives is by putting the desires of God above our own desires, which is hard sometimes for many of us to do. And if you pursue God, the third thing will happen is that you'll make your life all about putting other people first. You'll love like Jesus loved. You'll pursue a life of holiness, and you'll make your life all about putting others first. And that brings us full circle back to Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48, because this text of Scripture that I explained to you is all about releasing our rights so that we can make a difference in the lives of other people, even people in extreme cases who are our enemies. It's not about what our right is. It's about what our opportunity is. And this is something that Jesus did. Brian, you can come and we'll close. This is something that Jesus did. Jesus never asked us to do something that he wouldn't be willing to do himself. Listen to the way Peter describes Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter writes and says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He released his right to do those things. When he came into the world to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He said, instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so here's how I'm going to close. I want to ask you a question. And I'm going to ask it to every one of us, and we need, to, we need to answer it in our hearts as honestly as possible. Is seeking God enough of a priority in your life that you're willing to follow the example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in all things, trusting the outcome to God? Is following, is is pursuing God, being devoted to God, pursuing a relationship with God, a big enough priority in your life that you are willing to do what Jesus says we need to do, as countercultural as they sound, as difficult as they may be, to follow his example and follow his instruction and leave the result up to God. That's what this message is all about.